Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hi, my name is Pat Iyer, and this is Legal Nurse Podcast. With me today is Marianne Seibold, who is a legal nurse consultant who came to the field from a very different perspective than people who typically join legal nurse consulting. Marianne has experience as a clinical nurse working in med surge and open heart surgery areas. And then after earning an MBA, she joined the process of reviewing the care given to Medicare Advantage patients. You may not know if you are in the United States that somebody is watching over the quality of care given to Medicare patients. And if you're outside of the country, you might have a similar process in place or not. She's currently working as an independent LNC business owner doing some DME reviews, chronologies, subcontracting, and building up her practice working with attorneys. I thought you would enjoy hearing about her transition from the clinical nurse to working in the insurance field and what she did to help make sure that the providers in hospitals were delivering the quality of care that is required according to the standards of care. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the role in general that you fulfilled in the insurance company. What umbrella, if we had to put a title to that department, what umbrella does it fit under? So there are two interchangeable terms that are generally used, utilization management or utilization review. And typically in that, um, you have a nurse who's called the RN review analysis, who takes uh, evidence-based standards of care and her clinical knowledge to essentially review clinical information coming from facilities to ensure that appropriate treatment was given to the appropriate patient at the appropriate level of care. And in this review process, were you looking at nursing care? Were you looking at physician care or both? So you're looking at the overall care. So you're looking at what did they do for that patient, as in if they had COPD exacerbation, did they assess that patient as you would assess a COPD patient? Did they do the appropriate tests such as ABGs? Were they going to give them the appropriate medications such as bronchodilators and corticosteroids? And did they send them to the appropriate level like acute or maybe intermediate care to ensure that that patient was stable and safe? You know, when I was in nursing, and this concept started developing. The, what I remember the physician screaming about was, this is cookbook medicine. How can you tell me how to run my practice? 
Did you ever run into that reaction or have to respond to that type of um, diatribe? So luckily within um, the utilization review, there are a lot of different players um, and a lot of people who are reviewing it at different levels. Yes, you do have the nurse who's kind of the entry level to ensure that you know you have these evidence-based practices that are nationally recognized as appropriate care for that patient. And they are guidelines. So if they met that guidelines, then care was easily approvable. If not, then yes, you would have to send it for a secondary review, usually to the medical director or a doctor to see if you know there was differences because maybe certain medications were contraindicated. So it does be a medical necessity. Um, and yes, there is some pushback on, you know, this is not cookie cutter medicine, but that's why documentation and communication and reviewing standards of care are so important. And I think what you're emphasizing is that these are not protocols that are arbitrarily established. This is based on as you said, evidence-based medicine, it's established that this is a safe, effective pathway to take patients mm -hmm. down. What I also heard you say, and I wanna make sure that our listener got it, was that you as the nurse was the frontline reviewer. You were the person who was looking at the care, you're putting it through a sieve, so to speak, if you envision I've got my hands up in the air, kind of in a funnel shape. You're looking for, are those people fitting the standards of care? And the ones that fall out through the sieve are the ones whose care needs to be evaluated further. Did Correct. I get that right? Yep. All right. And then a physician would be a physician to physician conversation after that. When the nurse is doing that initial review, what is the goal? What is the purpose of that piece? So the goal is in to ensure that the appropriate patient is receiving the appropriate care at the appropriate level and that reimbursement meets at that level. There is so much waste in the U.S. healthcare system. In 2019, it was estimated that we spend over a billion dollars on healthcare. 30% of that was considered waste. So inappropriate levels of care, treatment was performed at outpatient instead of, or could have been performed at outpatient setting instead of inpatient, or it was being overused where people were going to the ER for medical treatment that could have been done by a primary care physician, and even abuse and a fraud. So the goal is to ensure that there are checks and balances to the system. Somebody's reviewing that care, ensuring that it meets the quality of care so that healthcare costs remain reasonable and don't balloon out of control. I think what you said was profound, Marianne, and I'm listening to this in the lens of a person who's not in the United States listening to this podcast and thinking, how can you waste that much money? Uh, where are, and you've given some great examples, but if we took that money and used it appropriately, um, it's astounding what kind of results we could get in terms of improved healthcare. And yet we are 
throwing money away in a variety of ways. And a lot of it is, you know, misconceptions of how to, you know, treat or where to go for treatment. And that's one of the uh, purposes of having utilization review um, happening because within the facilities, those nurses are reviewing to make sure that the standards of care are consistent throughout all parts of the organization. So PE patients that are meet standards of care, congestive heart failure patients are getting the standards of care. And if there's things that don't particularly meet, they're not checking off all those appropriate boxes, then there's, you know, discussions, evaluations, um, plans to improve that quality of care. And on the health care the health insurance side, we're ensuring that when we're paying for that care for our uh, members, they're getting that care that they're paying for, that we are paying for, their co-pays are going for. We don't want them to be paying for higher levels of care that maybe didn't actually meet the standards set. We don't want them paying for inpatient when maybe they could have, you know, gone in for abdominal discomfort and gone into an observational setting instead. Were there certain diagnoses, you mentioned congestive heart failure for one in COPD, were there certain diagnoses where your department concentrated their attention more? Uh, what were the, some of those bigger issues that you saw patterns, where you saw so, patterns? A lot of it was, you know, um, making sure that the standards that, and the diagnoses and the criteria that we're using all match up. Because what you see is a lot of times the put a diagnosis code to a specific disease process. And a lot of times you have those disease processes that have some overlapping um, similarities or patients have comorbidities such as, you know, I have COPD and I also have congestive heart failure some of those treatments and some of those um, assessments do overlap. And I might be giving a diagnosis of COPD, but maybe that resolved in the ER. And as a doctor, I'm really focusing on the heart, you know, congestive heart failure. And maybe that's why I'm admitting them for it. But maybe I don't know exactly which one I'm going to put as my primary diagnosis. So those diagnosis codes are paid at a very specific pay. So COPD is paid at a specific rate and congestive heart failure is paid at a specific rate. So I might put the wrong diagnosis code because I'm not really concentrating on the COPD. I resolve that. I'm really concentrating on the heart failure. So we would have to look over the documentation and say, well, you know what? We can see that you, know, you were treating and looking at both, but the primary reason for your mission, primary thing that you're focusing on, primary thing that you're caring for this patient while they're inpatient, is that congestive heart failure. So that is what you should be using. Mm -hmm. And how far did the protocols go in terms of defining conditions? And what I'm thinking specifically of is, you know, COPD and congestive heart failure, we know affect a large portion of the Medicare population. Were there protocols for less common conditions? You know, for example, somebody comes in with um, a bowel obstruction from a previously undiagnosed colon tumor. Were there protocols 
for a whole range of subjects or for simply for the more common ones? So you will hear different uh, standards uh, based evident criteria such as Interqual, Milman, or McKesson. And what these are, are a large standards of specific criteria for specific disease processes. And it's used as a guide to help those uh, healthcare professionals, hospital uh, administrators, UM staff, and insurance industries break down the disease process into the relatively body system. So if it deals with the heart, there's specific criteria that deals with different complications of the heart. Brain, like stroke, TIAs, different processes there. Lungs, even cancers. Those criteria um, that I mentioned, they do a great job of ensuring that anything that would require an inpatient observation level of care is listed out. And they even break it down, especially interqual, into levels of care. You know, that patient came in for that abdominal pain. Um, he needs inpatient because they're going to be doing surgical in intervention. The level of care that he's going to be getting will meet these levels of care. Um, so they really encompass all of healthcare all of disease processes. There's some things that do, yes, fall out of specific ranges. And that's why you're gonna be sending it for a secondary review to your, to your doctor to determine medical necessity. Now, these, these criteria are guidelines that are really used with the medical knowledge of the healthcare professional, the evidence-based practices, and the understanding of potentially how disease processes can play out. Well, suppose you had a provider who didn't follow the protocols. What would happen next? So let's say a provider didn't you know, follow the protocols. Um, and there's a lot to the review process. And there are a little bit different nuances, but let's say we are looking at a case, it was submitted to the insurance company, the review nurse is looking at it and saying, they didn't do the interventions for that patient's diagnosis of COPD exacerbation. They didn't give those bronchodilators. They didn't give those corticosteroids. Based on this evidence-based practices, I'm gonna to have to send this up for a secondary review. So I'm going to ensure that the medical doctor who's getting this uh, case understands that, yes, they didn't meet per X, Y, and Z. Here's the clinical information that they gave me. Here's the assessment of the disease process and the treatment that they did do, but here's where it falls short. That doctor, he or she is going to look at that information and say, can I make a medical determination based on the information that they gave me to either say, yes, I can understand why they might have deviated or no, I cannot understand, a negative determination is made. From there, those after a negative determination is made, the doctors can do a peer-to-peer -peer where both doctors are discussing the care and saying, you know, this is my rationale, you know, okay, I can understand that, or no, you could have performed that at, at a lower level of care and that's where you should have been. After those peer-to-peers have conducted, they can actually do in a formal appeals process where there's several levels where more information can be submitted, more clinical data usually comes 
uh, over so that the insurance company can, you know, say, be looking at it and saying, okay, yes, when you did the formal appeal, you gave me much more information about this patient. And, you know, based on medical necessity, I understand why the patient was admitted. Or, no, based on the clinical information you've given me, we're sending it back to the doctor for uh, another more substantial review. And unfortunately, the negative determination still meets where you could have performed that care at a lower level. So that way, we're keeping healthcare level costs lower. We're ensuring that the the member is or the patient is not paying a higher copay for inpatient stay when they got observational level of care. And that um, overall, it could be a potential education and training process for the facilities to ensure that they are meeting those standards of care. And if not, they're having good information about why they didn't, why they deviated. And essentially, if they have to change processes and grow and learn and do quality assurances, this is another way for them to uh, look at that. Is it costly to take a case through this appeal process? It is very costly. And that's why good conversations between the healthcare organization and the insurance is vital. You know, you have those UM nurses from the facilities and from the health, the insurance industries. They're having those discussions saying, you know, these are the standards of care. These are what we're asking you to submit. Um, because if things are, you know, not always done timely or effectively, and you're going through those appeals, first level, second level, peer to peer, it's taking a lot of the healthcare uh, time. So you have a lot of healthcare professionals tied up in these reviews. And it costs uh, quite a bit of money because you have to think about that time is money. You know, you're having doctors not look at patients, but have a conversation doctor to doctor about what care they did for that patient. You're having nurses review clinical information um, and trying to see what, what, why it was deviated. Um, and it does take quite a bit of time, which adds up to healthcare dollars. Mm-hmm. And also if the care is denied, the patient has gone home, the hospital and the physician are not gonna be reimbursed for the care that they've already provided, that's costly also, is it not? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. I'm Pat Iyer, and I have with me today Teresa DeVitt Lynch. Teresa and I have been planning a two-day conference to take place June 9th and 10th, 2022, on the topic of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. This is geared to legal nurse consultants who are interested in building up and expanding their practice to focus on cases where there are criminal charges filed and are interested in learning more about this to most effectively help their attorney clients. Teresa, tell our listener a little bit about why this conference that we're planning together is unique in terms of helping people prepare for the conference. 
there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cases in the criminal court system for which for which LNCs can be very useful, and a lot of those cases involve injuries or medical issues that can affect the interpretation of injuries or even the formation of injuries during a physical assault. And when you talk about domestic violence, understanding how injuries are formed, different mechanisms of injuries is very important because physical assault is often one of the center points of a domestic violence situation. So the LNC would need to know, um, you know, how to identify properly, identify injuries, and then also how to interpret them within the context of the identified mechanism of injury. And for the person watching this video who doesn't know your background, can you share how you got involved in helping attorneys with criminal cases? Sure. I did 20 years in the military. I, I retired in 2017 from the Navy as a nurse. I started doing sexual assault exams in 2011 in the military. From there, the rest of my military career was spent in education and training. That's the my, my master's background is, is in education and training, but then also managing different sexual assault forensic examination programs for different military um, healthcare facilities. And uh, with that, I started to get involved into military court martials and specifically with sexual assault. And I would serve as a consultant for the sexual assault examinations, interpreting injuries there, uh, and um, assisting the attorneys in trial strategy and, and you know, the other aspects of the court martial. Uh, and then when I retired, I just shifted those skills into and, and started to incorporate civilian cases into, into my practice. So now I do uh, legal nurse consulting work for all types of criminal cases, not just sexual assault, but sexual assault, strangulation, domestic violence, physical assault. I mean, there's a, a wide variety of cases, like I mentioned earlier, that an LNC can be involved in. And then in order to help people prepare for the conference, what are you putting together to make their learning even deeper when it comes to evaluating domestic violence cases? So during the conference, we have three, three uh, lectures that are based on injuries. We've got the closed head injury, we've got orthopedic injuries and strangulation. And understanding the basic concepts of mechanism of injury, injury formation, uh, you know, other elements of a person's health and well-being and, and skin factors that affect or can influence the formation of injury in response to a specific force applied to the body is very important. So what we're going to do here, instead of spending the conference time kind of getting that background information and that foundation of injury identification and interpretation, We'll have information for them ahead of time on different types of injuries, blunt force injuries, sharp injuries, spend a little time discussing bruising or contusions. That way, that, in, that information can be directly applied to the topics that we'll be discussing at the conference, the strangulation, the closed head injury, and um, the orthopedic injuries. And we can use the foundational information that they will learn about ahead of time and actually apply that at, at the conference. So it'll save some time at the conference and let them actually use that information, put it to work right away. I'm all in favor of putting learning to work right away because that gives the application to go with all the theory mm -hmm. 
and it stays locked in and embedded much better that way. Yes, I agree. I think I think having this information ahead of time was just makes better use of our time during the conference. And the link to get information about this program is lnc.tips forward slash dv for domestic violence, lnc.tips forward slash dv. If you are hearing this audio after the conference is over, we will have it available for you in a recorded format. I encourage you to put those dates of June 9th and 10th, 2022 on your calendar so you can join us live, participate in the learning, network your, with your fellow LNCs, and learn how to provide this type of case consulting to your existing LNC practice. There's a lot of work in this field, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, violence against women is a, a factor that affects the safety and health of women in all strata, all educational levels, all economic levels, and much of it goes on behind closed doors. As a legal nurse consultant, you can help the attorneys who are handling these cases and both the prosecutor and the defense need the assistance of a knowledgeable legal nurse consultant. So join us and ramp up your skills. lnc.tips forward slash dv. We'll see you there. Now let's return to the show. So you have to think about, and there's different levels um, and it gets a little bit there's a lot of nuances when it comes to saying denying. A lot of times the insurance company is saying, we are not denying the care. They deserve to be cared for, but we're saying that it, the hospital provided care that was at a lower level than they submitted for. So they're gonna get reimbursed at a lower level of care. Okay. So, so instead of an acute, yeah, instead of the, the admitted the patient to a, you know, acute care, they're on a med search floor. Um, and the care that they provided could have potentially been done an observational level of care. So the insurance company is saying, well, what you did was observational level of care. And that's what you're going to get reimbursed for. Hmm. And is that a significant difference? It can be. All right. Without so getting, without getting too much into it, because like I said, every diagnosis is paid on what is called a DRG. So it's based on diagnosis codes that say that this diagnosis for MI costs X amount of dollars. This diagnosis for COPD costs X amount of dollars. And acute versus inpatient costs differently as well. Mm-hmm. We have financial implications, certainly, as you're describing in terms of being reimbursed at a lower level of care. We have the appeal costs that you've outlined. This is a costly, time-consuming process. What changes did you see in the time that you were in this role? First of all, how long were you in this Medicare Advantage review process role? So I did it for about four years. Um, during that time, I started as an, a nurse who actually analyzed the case and eventually went up to administration where I had to deal with a lot of different regulatory bodies, mm -hmm. um, 
administrators, and you get an understanding of how the system works. And really, I can tell you it's all about communication um, because utilization management has definitely changed and grown the past 20 years. And as healthcare continues to change and grow, facilities, insurance companies, um, they really need to, uh, healthcare professionals, they really need to continue those lines of communication and grow and change with, uh, with it. So when I was doing it, what I had noticed was the longer you dealt with facilities, the longer you talked and got those relationships with your utilization management um, teams on both sides, the better you understood how to communicate and what information was required so that, you know, you had less pains as you went on, you know, you understood, you know, this is what I need to ensure that we don't get a negative determination on this type of disease process or, okay, you know, this disease process, a lot of times the standard of care says that we should put them in observation for, you know, several hours to make sure that we're not missing anything. But if, and if at that time we need to make them impatient, we can, or maybe at that time we realize that they are stable and they can, you know, be discharged home. There's a lot of communication that goes on and it really helps both the facility insurance companies and the overall care for individuals um, be done at the most appropriate level. When I finished my master's degree, I went into staff development and I gained a new appreciation of how difficult it is to teach people across different shifts, across different levels of attention, different levels of understanding introducing new procedures, introducing new equipment, uh, talking about new standards and new policies. That communication piece, as you just talked about, mm -hmm. is critical. And, and yet it sounds so easy. We teach people what they should be doing, but are they paying attention? Are they even present? Are they integrating? Are they remembering it? Are they referring to it at the time that they need that information? That's all a big um, aspect of helping people change their behavior. Yep, and what's, what's good though, is you have those evidence-based standards of care that you will hear oftentimes in facilities saying, oh yes, we're using Interqual or, oh yes, we use Melman. Um, and they'll use those evidence-based criteria. And then there's also even regulatory agents like CMS, so Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services and NCQA, National Committee of Quality Assurance, who say, you know, there's specific standards that we request. So here are the outlines that your facility has to, on both sides of the fence, insurance, healthcare organizations, meet to ensure that you're doing quality of care and that we have measurements of that care that helps the consumer ensure that they're making the best decisions for them at the right time. Are these built into the facility's electronic medical record to act as prompts? Or is there some other way that these standards are available to providers? So CMS and NCQA um, so CMS is the Federal Insurance Programs for Medicare and Medicaid, 
and NCQA is an independent organization that sets quality assurance standards. This is similar to how you would think of J JACO, Joint Commission, coming in. They have regulations. You can go to their, um, their websites like cms.gov or ncqa.gov, and it is a requirement that these facilities, you know, participate in their relative programs. Um, how they do it, it's going to be based on the facility, how they're going to uh, implement and how they're going to respond to those requirements and the, how they disseminate those requirements to their staff. Insurance industry, what we did was we not only reviewed those requirements, we had those standards of care that we uh, used to evaluate it. Um, we also participated in audits to ensure that we are meeting those standards. And, and CQA and CMS, they rate you on ensuring that you're meeting those standards. So CMS, they have a STARS rating where uh, one is poor and five is excellent. And they're saying, okay, um, you're meeting these specific requirements. We're going to evaluate and compare it throughout the healthcare spectrum. And we think that you're extremely excellent. So we're going to give you a five-star rating. And the consumer is going to be able to see that because you're doing such a great job. And, and then Q on the other hand is going to say, okay, we're going to do these measurements such as HEDIS, uh, which is healthcare effectiveness data and information. Um, I know I'm throwing out a lot of acronyms. Um, but they're using their system to rate based on standards standards across the healthcare spectrum, saying that, okay, you're doing such a great job on these core measures and you're giving us this information and we can say, okay, you're doing a great job. We are going to uh, give you a good rating so that the healthcare community can look at you and just make the decisions that they need to make in a uniformed way. You're describing a lot of standards. Is there ever any conflict between one agency saying you do this and another agency saying, oh, no, you don't do that. You do this instead. So they do have different some different requirements. Like CMS has longer timeframes to submit and review and just give a determination than NCQA. NCQA is a much stringer. They have a lot shorter time period. And usually, especially what we did in the insurance industry, is we went with who had the the more stringent. So sometimes CMS requirements were a little bit uh, stringent and sometimes NCQA had more stringent uh, requirements. And we said, you know, to make sure that we're being the best that we can be, we'll, we'll follow the stricter of the two guidelines or we, depending on the different uh, levels of care because some, they do uh, measure for different healthcare uh, products. Um, we're making sure that we meet it on this side of the healthcare products that we are providing to these patients or these uh, this community um, versus CMS's over Medicare Advantage Part D or meeting their requirements for this specific uh, mm -hmm. section. So the, yes, sometimes it is a little bit of conflicting. That's why a lot of times you know you're ensuring that you're what you're looking at, what lines of care you're looking at meets up with those specific requirements. Um, so you will at times make sure that you're meeting uh, a stricter timeframe for all of your, your care continuum 
just so you're not going to be out of compliance with anybody. Mm -hmm. You picked up your head one day and you decided that you were ready for a change and you left your role. How did what you did for those four years impact your perspective and your skills as a legal nurse consultant? So as a nurse, we all use those clinical assessment skills, our critical thinking, and the nursing process that we are trained to in school every single day. We get to understand the quality of care uh, and what should happen, what could have happened, and what should not have happened within the healthcare realm. Those skills to be able to quickly identify uh, deviations or adherence to uh, standards really comes in handy when you are a legal nurse consultant. It almost becomes fluid. You understand what needs to happen in those cases. And if it didn't happen, how those uh, regulations, policies and procedures um, could be affected. All skills that as a legal nurse consultant, you need to have. It really gives you the fundamentals to be successful in this, uh, this line of business. It sounds like you spend quite a bit of time analyzing medical records for the insurance agency, and you're doing the same type of analysis <clears throat> for attorneys and looking at their cases. Yes. The whole, whole process is really just making sure that care is appropriate. You're doing the analysis for them in a more cost-effective way because you were trained from your starting of your nursing career until now, how to do that care, how to do that as assessments, and how to use all those skills that you've learned when you graduated from nursing school and you go out into the field and you're taking care of those patients in a different way. You're still using all those knowledge of disease process, body systems, um, regulations and accreditations that you need to be aware of, but it's in a different way. It's in a different process. You're not doing it, you know, in the hospital anymore or, you know, for the insurance company. You're doing it for those attorney clients. Make sure that they have the best information for their case. What a great preparation for being a business owner, spending your time evaluating standards of care, looking at documentation, making decisions about whether the standards were followed. Uh, that sounds like a, a great training ground for helping attorneys in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yes, How it can, definitely was. I know that there'll be people who are listening to this who will want to connect with you, Marianne. What would be the best way for them to do that? So you could go to my website, cyboldconsultingagency.com, and it will have all of my contact information, my phone number, and my email address. And that website is S-E-I-B-O-L-D consultingagency.com. So my last name.com. All right. And Mary Ann's last name is spelled S-E-I-B-O-L-D. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I know we only touched on the surface of what we could have discussed in this very important role of regulating standards of care and healthcare delivery in a way that is consistent with quality. It's also 
effectively utilizing our healthcare resources. You shocked us in the beginning with talking about the percentage of waste that is in the U.S. healthcare system. And it is such a tragedy that we are wasting that much of our healthcare dollar. It sounds like agencies and organizations such as yours were targeting that waste to help make healthcare more efficient, more cost-effective, delivered according to the evidence-based standards, delivered in a cost-effective way rather than utilizing higher acute care services when an observational level of care or outpatient care could have been the better answer for that patient. And then you've also described for us what happens when a provider doesn't follow the standards and there is a review and an appeal process that can be undertaken and hopefully results in either a coherent explanation about what occurred or um, perhaps an awakening or an increased awareness of how I could have handled the situation better and what I should do in the future. Yes, I know it was extremely high level and we didn't get into all the nuances that um, come along with these kind of reviews, but I do think that, um, at least I hope we helped your viewers understand the basic concepts and gave them the tools that maybe they can use to do more research on their own. I really think that it's important for all of us in the healthcare industry um, and without, to know about what we need to do to improve the outcomes of care across the healthcare continuum. And on that note, Marianne, I think this is a perfect point to complete our podcast. Thank you to you for sharing your knowledge and your experience and giving us a little peek into the world of reviewing the care of Medicare Advantage patients and for you who has been watching this on our YouTube channel at Legal Nurse Business or listening on our audio channels, thank you for investing the time to learn about this aspect of care and how Marianne Seibel was able to transfer her knowledge in a review environment into using those skills as a legal nurse consultant. Come back next week. We'll have a new guest, new topic. And thank you for being a listener of Legal Nurse Podcast. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. I am Pat Iyer. Ashley Morrow and I have just finished talking. Ashley is a nurse who came from the long-term care industry and decided that she wanted to become a legal nurse consultant. And now... Approximately two years later, she has a thriving full-time business. I asked Ashley a number of questions in the podcast to pull her secrets for her success out of her. Ashley, what were some of the topics that we covered in your podcast? Um, we started off with how I prepared, how I set myself up to be able to quit the full-time in a facility to go full-time for myself. I also talked about subcontractors, how I found them, um, what I use them for, what specific areas. Um, we talked about marketing strategies and the rewards of having your own business, being able to work from home, 
being flexible and staying with your family more hours in the day. You'll want to be sure to listen to Ashley's podcast and understand how she created very carefully, crafted this pathway to bring her into a full-time LNC business in only a couple of years. And if that seems like a short period of time, you're on the right track of thinking. Usually it takes between three to five years to get geared up to a full-time business. And Ashley did it in a short period with some very careful planning. And she'll share with you how she planned in the podcast, as well as how she markets her business to stay visible. Ashley Morrow and Pat Iyer in Legal Nurse Podcast. Be sure to catch Ashley's show. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.